You're listening to Your Jewish Life, Your Way with Karen Cinnamon, the podcast that explores what it feels like to be Jewish or Jewish in 2022. On the show, we divulge all of the secrets and know-how to being confident in celebrating and living your Jewish life, your way, with easy, simple ways to embrace your mishpacha through the traditions and rituals you've been dying to learn more about. So save your kvetching, we are talking less Jewish guilt and more Jewish joy here on out. Yalla, forget about the right and wrong ways to be Jewish. It's time to create a Jewish life you love living. Well, a very happy Tuesday to you if you're listening to the show on the day it comes out. How are you? How's November treating you so far? Wow, how did we get into November? How are we less than 50 days away from Hanukkah? And how are you feeling about Hanukkah? So many questions. I love chatting with you. I love these episodes. Today is an exciting one for me because I finally got Ben M. Freeman onto the podcast. Ben and I do have a friendship that that goes back some time. And he did come in to speak to my Smashing Life Jewish community, which was so powerful, so impactful. And ever since then, I said, Ben, you've got to do a podcast with me. And finally, he's come on today to speak to us about the Jewish pride revolution. You know, I'm all about the Jewish pride, that it's all about the things that spark meaning and joy for me, for you, and going all in on it. Jewish pride, Jewish joy. And there's so much to unpack today with Ben. You're going to get so much from this episode. We talked about why there's no such thing as good Jews and bad Jews. We talked about reclaiming our story as Jews and not being defined by the narrative around us, which I think is an absolute must listen. So many takeaways. Ben also shared about his own journey to owning his Jewish identity, how it was all set in motion by his experiences as a proud gay man. And he wants to make sure we stop allowing the non-Jewish world to define our narratives. And I think his approach is truly changing the Jewish world. I'm really excited for you to listen to this. As always, contact me, drop me a DM, let me know what you thought of the episode, screenshot the Spotify app or the Apple app that you're listening to, tag me at Your Jewish Life and share the love. So let's dive in with Ben. Here I am with Ben Freeman in the house. So excited to have you on today, Ben. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I cannot wait to continue our conversation. Yes. So I'm going to dive right in with a big question that I want to know and everyone else does too. How did you actually get here? You're so young. You're now on your second book. Why are you the person I'm talking to about Jew hate, Jewish pride and internalized anti-Jewishness? Why Ben? (laughs) I think that where I am right now is a culmination of everything I've experienced thus far. And I guess that's true for everyone, right? That's not particular to me. It's just that my specific experiences led me to this place in my life, place in the world. And in a sense, I took two journeys. One was a Jewish journey, which was, you know, always filled with pride and joy and love and an understanding of our difference. And I think that's very important. And I think that's something, you know, you referenced internalized anti-Jewishness. I think that's something that Jews are quite afraid of, the fact that we are different. So how did I understand our difference? Well, I'm from Scotland, as you can probably tell from my, my accent. And 
just a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, depending on when this is released, it was Rosh Hashanah. And I remember growing up and eating pomegranate every single Rosh Hashanah. Mm-hmm. And I knew that we ate pomegranate, Rimonim, because that was one of the Shivat Haminim, the seven species of fruit from Israel, the land of Israel, our indigenous homeland. Now, I might not have known the word indigenous when I was a child, but I understood that we were different. I understood that pomegranate was not native to Scotland. <laughs> Right. So it's a Jewishness and, and my love of Jewishness and my love of Jewish history has always been a part of my experience. And I became a Jewish leader, a madrich for RSY Netzer, for UJIA. I led trips to Poland, to Israel. So I've always been kind of involved in Jewish education. And I worked for UJIA, as I said, and that's when I started my Holocaust education journey. I was about 18 or 19. And I started leading trips to Poland from Glasgow. And that really started my deep dive into Holocaust history. And, you know, I studied politics at university and actually with regards to all of the Jewish work, my Jewish knowledge, I'm totally self-taught. I never studied it at university. I studied politics, political science, and that started this journey. And then, you know, the Corbyn experience happened and that led me to Twitter and that kind of exploded my voice. Now, a really important part of my story that kind of was happening simultaneously was my kind of journey with regards to my sexual orientation. So I'm also a proud gay man. And I think I always knew that I was gay and probably pre-puberty, I was not, it didn't matter as much, but you know, when you're into puberty and you're a teenage boy or a teenager, these things become much more important. And I really struggled. I had very poor mental health, as I detail in my new book, Reclaiming Our Story. I um, attempted suicide, I self-harmed, I investigated conversion therapy. I was really experiencing an enormous amount of pain and trauma. I mean, really an enormous amount, and I hated myself. And I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. I was, I had a love. I was in love with this boy, and he kind of loved me back, but it was in the early noughties and he was not able to admit his feelings and I was not able to kind of express mine really. So we were caught in this very painful, years long, you know, love affair, awful experience that was never realized because mm. we we were just not able to go there. And that pain that I experienced eventually was pushed into me exploring gay pride. And I've spoken about this a little bit in this book, and I've spoken about it a little bit recently. There was one experience I had that really flipped my mind switch. It didn't heal my trauma, but it flipped my mind frame. And I was in the bathroom, and I was in a huge amount of pain emotionally, and I began to cry. And I, this was something I never did. I never cried. And I began to cry, and I felt really angry. And I felt that I was being punished for a crime I hadn't committed. Like I was a kid, you know, I was a child and I was absorbing societal homophobia, not necessarily from the people around me, actually. I've always been very fortunate to have not been surrounded by homophobes, but it was society. And that realization was like a a salve. It didn't heal my trauma, but it propelled me forward. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, this is BS. I don't deserve this. And that pushed me towards my kind of, LGBTQ plus pride journey. And now I'm a very proud gay man. I would not choose to be heterosexual. I love being gay. I think it's amazing. That took me a long, long time to get there. Journeys happening simultaneously and they really, they came together in Jewish pride. This was 
learning from the gay movement, from the LGBTQ plus movement, how can Jews experience the same um, joy, the same pride, the same revolution? And how can we rid ourselves of internalized um, anti-Jewishness, which is what the second book is about? Because I experienced internalized homophobia. I even experienced internalized anti-Jewishness. I experienced all of this stuff. This is not me speaking to my readers or my audience from a pedestal. This is me speaking to them as one of them. I am them. These are my experiences. And I really just ultimately feel that Jews deserve to feel good about our Jewishness, just as LGBTQ plus people deserve to feel positive about their LGBTQ plus identity. And that is how I got here. So in one sense, it was deeply emotional. You know, all of this work, pride, working through internalized homophobia, working through internalized anti-Jewishness, that was an emotional journey. But it was taking place simultaneously from an intellectual journey that I was going on, which is why I'm able to kind of explain things from a historical, contemporary perspective, because I'm also a teacher. So I was trained in how to stand up in front of university students, high school students, elementary school, primary school students, and explain complex topics in accessible ways. So that's where I got my training. So it was really all of these journeys have kind of coalesced and come together and has to be Bichette, right? <laughs> you know what? Yeah. I wrote, I, there's an article coming out in Eve Barlow's Substack. I think it's coming out just before this will be released. And I, and oh, I said, we'll link to it in the show notes if it will be. Yeah. And I said, I don't know why I survived. I'm no better or no stronger than the thousands of LGBTQ plus people who didn't. You know, LGBTQ plus people are four times more likely to attempt suicide. That was my experience. I don't know why I survived. But the only way I can make sense of it is that the work that I am meant to do is to spread pride, is to spread self-esteem, help people progress on their journeys to wholeness, because it's the only thing I can understand my luck versus some other person's luck who was just as beautiful and valuable as I am. You know? Wow, so much to talk through. But before we went live, you said something which I really latched on to, which is Jewish pride is a revolution. And what I understand by that is that it's a reaction to what you call this internalized anti-Jewishness. Can we unpack internalized anti-Jewishness for any listeners that it's the first time they're hearing such a line because it is such an integral part to, to what you do. Absolutely. So internalized anti-Jewishness is kind of my um, way to describe what is commonly referred to as self-hate, Jewish self-hate. That's not a term that I use. I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think it's useful. So it's one that I, I kind of reject actually in the very early, very, the very, the very beginning of the book. I've defined internalized anti-Jewishness, the kind of term that I would use as when Jews allow the non-Jewish world to define our narratives. When we absorb, there's the word internalized, when we absorb, internalize their perspectives on us. So actually it's much more um, intense in some ways than just self-hate. I experienced this. I've never hated my Jewishness, never. But I did want to show the world that I was a good Jew. I was absorbing their definitions of good Jew and bad Jew. And let's be very clear, although there are people kind of in the activist space who sometimes talk about good Jews, bad Jews, they don't exist. Internalized anti-Jewishness is the way that I describe what is commonly referred to as self-hate. 
Jewish self-hate. Now that's a term that I reject. I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's appropriate. So in the book, Reclaiming Our Story, I explain why I don't use that. And I propose the term internalized anti-Jewishness, internalized Jew hate. The really important part of this descriptor is internalized. Mm. We internalize non-Jewish ideas about our identity. That is how I describe or how I define internalized anti-Jewishness. When we internalize non-Jewish ideas about our identity and allow them, i.e. the non-Jewish world, to define our narrative. Now, this is a really, really huge problem. And one of the reasons I don't use the phrase self-hate is because I never hated myself as a Jew. And I think maybe some Jews do hate themselves, right? Some LGBTQ plus people hate themselves when we talk about internalized homophobia, but it's a much more nuanced conversation that needs to take place. And what we see is the non-Jewish world defining good Jews and bad Jews. Those do not exist. There are no good Jews, there are no bad Jews. I would say there are just Jews. My definition of a Jew is if you're born to a Jewish mother or a Jewish father, you are a Jew. That's really my perspective on it. Um, But the non-Jewish world, they create definitions, categories of good Jew and bad Jew, which then we absorb. That's what I mean when I'm talking about we allow them to define our narrative. So when I used to say I'm Jewish, but what was I meaning? I was saying I'm a good Jew. I'm a cool Jew. I'm Jews just like you. Who are the bad Jews in that scenario? Well, I was speaking about Orthodox Jews. I'm not like them. They are extremists, they're fundamentalists, all of those terrible things that are said about Orthodox Jews, many of which are not true. But we absorb them because simply we want to be accepted. That is what this comes down to. And that is why when I write about internalized anti-Jewishness, as I do in the second book, I try to do it with enormous amounts of empathy. Because like the realization I had when I was a young kid standing in my bathroom that I had done nothing wrong, That is the same realization we as Jews need to have. We have done nothing wrong. This is an imposition on us by the wider world. Good Jews and bad Jews are their categories of Jewish identity. They're not ours. So we have to free ourselves, shed our shame, shed their definitions of acceptable, palatable Jewishness and explore our own. Wow. So liberating to hear that. It's funny when you were talking about good Jew, bad, you know, my immediate thought was thinking about it in terms of the Jewish world, you know, if you keep kosher, you're a good Jew, if you don't, yeah. bad Jew. But then as you went on, it reminded me of an experience that I had where I did that exact same thing. I must have been a teenager, 17 or something. And in my experience at my school, all the, a lot, well, not all, a lot of the Jewish, it was a girl's school, a lot of the Jewish girls were a little bit cliquey and would talk about things like Shabbat and Friday night dinners in front of the non-Jewish girls. And I felt it was leaving them at, excluding them. And I tried to be the, the good Jew that actually like, I'm a Jew that includes you and I'm really nice. And like, I, I remember consciously thinking, I want to show them that Jewish people. And it's just, you've yeah. suddenly reminded me of something that I thought was just me doing a good day's work. You know, it's, it's really... <laughs> Right? So it's good to be inclusive, but we also have to be able to, to actually say, no, we're a rule, a rule governed society. We're, we're not like the other, you know, if we're talking about the religious aspect of Jewishness, we're not like the other religions. We actually uh, don't want converts. Right? That is the whole point, right? People have to really work hard to convert to Judaism, which really shows how much effort they have to make when, when they make this, this journey. It's immensely complicated and it's something many of us feel. And I would say I'm a good Jew whilst wearing a kippah. Or sorry, I would say I'm Jewish but whilst wearing a kippah. I would say I'm Zionist but 
while having an Israeli flag in my hand. What does that mean? I'm Zionist, but well, what I was really meaning, and let's be honest, because when we have to have healing conversations, we have to be honest. I went to therapy for, I mean, maybe like 10 years on and off, and I was never ready to recognize my sexual orientation. So the therapy was useless because I wasn't willing to be honest. So to really heal, we have to be honest. And in honesty, what I was saying when I was saying to people, when I was telling people, I'm a, I'm Zionist, but again, I was trying to be a good Zionist. Uh, yeah, I support Israel's right to self-determination, but that word but is very important. There should be no but. I support Israel's right to self-determination, period. And if people want to ask about my perspective on the Palestinian state, then absolutely I'll give that. But actually, in some ways, you don't need to preface so, you know, your Zionism or qualify, let's say, your Zionism with, but, 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 guys, I'm, I'm a good Zionist here. I support the Palestinian right to self-determination. No, let's have the self-esteem and the confidence. Because I have to tell you, this is not just a Jewish experience. There's a an amazing book that I quote quite frequently in, in my new book. It's called Jewish Self-Hate. This was the terminology when this book was written in the 19, late 1920s, 2930, it came out. And he says, Theodore Lessing is the great man who wrote this. He says, this is a problem of the human race. And it's absolutely true. There is really fantastic and important academic research into this in the black community. We talk about it frequently in the gay community, in the LGBTQ plus community. And I have to say very honestly, as someone who is a member of another minority community, the Jewish community, we are generations behind other communities in having these conversations. Mm -hmm. The black community is so much further ahead than us. The LGBTQ plus community is so much further ahead than us. Even women as a collective will talk about internalized misogyny. This is one of the first books that really deals with this subject in a hundred years. There have been many articles written, academic, in, in newspapers, but in terms of actual books, there's not that many. Mm. Who would you like, whose, whose hands would you like this book? You know, so we mentioned the book in the introduction, but Ben's got his second book out just now. I'm sure most of my listeners have read the first book, Jewish Pride. If not, it's our new Bible. <laughs> but the second book, Reclaiming Our Story, has just come out. And we'll put the link in in the show notes to get that. But whose hands do you want it to be in most of all? I want every Jew to read this. And this is an evolution in my understanding of the Jewish people from the book, the first book you mentioned, Jewish Pride Rebuilding a People. When I wrote that book, people would say to me the same question, who do you want to read it? And I would say, probably progressive Jews. They're the ones, I think, who really need this message because of what is happening in the progressive community. But, you know, the, in, in the conversation we had before we started recording, we talked about all of the events that I have done online from Hong Kong. I did hundreds of events literally all over the world to promote this first book. And it made me realize that every single Jew needs Jewish pride. So in this second book, I feature interviews with Jews who... Um, who experienced internalized anti-Jewishness and then who have either overcome it or who, or who are going in the journey to overcome it. One of those is an Orthodox Jewish woman and she's talking about her internalized anti-Jewishness. And of course, in the first book, we had Elisheva Rashon, who is a Black American Orthodox Jewish woman, but she was not talking about internalized anti-Jewishness. So I'm trying to really draw a distinction between these the voices of these two Orthodox women. Elisheva was talking about her pride in her Jewishness whereas Shoshana was telling me the journey she has gone on. And it's incredible to me because in my naivety, I would have thought, well, this is not a thing that affects Orthodox Jews because their life is governed by Jewishness. No, this affects every Jew. It affects Israelis. 
even the Jews born and living in our indigenous land. It affects them because while they might be living in a Jewish majority, i.e. the state of Israel, they're still a tiny minority if we zoom out and see the global Jew, uh, the global stage, right? So I want every Jew to read this. I want every Jew to read this book and feel seen and feel heard and feel that they are supported in going on a journey of self-discovery because that's what each of us need to do. You know, the stories that I told you about my experience with internalized homophobia, that did not, um, those were not resolved overnight. It involved real work. And that is what the Jewish people need to do. We need to go on journeys and do the work to investigate, to understand, to recognize, and then to defeat internalized anti-Jewishness. But we're a collective. We can't do it alone. So we have to do the individual journeys while also supporting collectively. So, you know, as as you know, with this podcast, I like to have people listen to it and then walk away maybe with some practical, actionable tips. What what advice would you give to someone who isn't currently feeling that Jewish pride but would like to be? Well, the first thing I would say is do not feel any shame. You have done nothing wrong. We live in a world which shames us, which manipulates us, which defines our identity for us, we have done nothing wrong. But if you feel that you are lacking in Jewish pride, the practical steps that I would uh, identify, let's say, number one is Jewish pride is not just a goal. It's not just a movement. It's not just something we work towards. It is something we can wear and use every single day. And it simply is the examination of Jewishness through Jewish eyes, through the Jewish mirror of identity. So in the first chapter of the second book, I talk about the broken mirror of Jewish identity, which is really the non-Jewish world defining our identity and then reflecting it back at us. No, we define our own identity. But how do we do that? So of course we have to utilize Jewish pride every day, but perhaps the most important kind of aspect of this. And, you know, trust me, a teacher, a history teacher saying what I'm about to say, we have to do the work. We have to investigate. We have to understand. And I'm not talking from an emotional perspective only. I'm talking about a historical perspective. Where do Jewish people come from? Listen, this is maybe something I'm about to say, contra- I'm about to say something perhaps a little controversial. Go for it. <laughs> but understand my context as a history teacher. We live in a world which talks about your truth and my truth. And of course, you may have a different perspective, Karen, than me. But with regards to some things, I'm not saying everything, but some things, there is truth. And truth is something we can identify historically and we can prove. And I'm talking again from my my perspective as a history teacher. So why is that relevant? Well, let's talk about where the Jews originated. There is an idea that is very politically motivated to say that we're indigenous to Europe. The Ashkenazi Jews particularly, right? That we're Eastern European. We're not Eastern European. Number one, when we lived in Eastern Europe, we were always rejected. And quite specifically, we were not European. So when I talk about Jews living in Eastern Europe, that's how I say it. I don't say Eastern European Jews. That's inaccurate. I say Jews living in Eastern Europe. But if we're going to talk about where we came from, We came from the land of Israel. That is our indigenous homeland. That is not up for debate. It is historically true. And when we go on our Jewish pride journeys, we have to understand our history, not just our history, Karen's history, Ben's history. What does it mean as a collective? 
you know, you're English. I'm, I'm quite certain you're English, Karen. I'm Scottish. Our families had slightly different histories. But actually, we go back a few generations, maybe even further than that, and actually our histories are probably very similar. There is a collective Jewish experience that is provable. So we have to understand our history. The other component, I would say, is action. How are you, and I'm speaking to you, wonderful listeners, how are you going to incorporate Jewish pride into your everyday lives? I wear a kippah every day. And let me tell you, I'm not religious. I'm really, really secular, which often surprises people because I wear a kippah. But I want to mark myself as a Jew. Historically, we were marked as Jews. They put marks on us, yellow stars, pointed hats to shame us. And I say, no, there's absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. And you know what? I'm going to mark myself as a Jew. So as this is not recorded, but as Karen can see, I'm wearing a plunging neckline, as I often do. Wouldn't and I, expect anything less, Ben. Absolutely. I mean, you've, everyone's <laughs> seen it all by now, right? I wore a gold Magen David, and the Magen David is actually based on the Magen David from the cover of my first book. And I wear a kippah every single day, every time I leave the house without a baseball cap, I have to say. Sometimes if I don't do my hair, I put a cap on. But if I'm going out into the world, I put on a kippah because I want them to know that I'm a Jew. And while I might not keep kosher, while I might not keep Shabbat, I am going out into the world, showing them my Jewishness and expressing it with pride. So each of us can find a way to express and feel our Jewishness. And, you know, you mentioned something a little bit earlier, Karen, about the Jewish community not always being as welcoming to its own. And I really agree with that. We create hierarchies of Jewishness. We depending on whether you keep kosher, whether you do this, whether you do that, whether you do that. And I've got to be honest, most of the people who are making those judgments are beyond hypocritical because they will make their own version of something and then look down on others who may not do that. And this is across the board. Let's not pretend this is a problem in only one or two aspects, one or two parts of our community. This is across the board. But let me tell you, and this is as a food lover, I'm, a, I'm not a foodie because I, my palate is undeveloped, as my partner always tells me, but I love to eat. Jewishness is a huge groaning buffet table and there is food on it from across the Jewish world. We have shakshuka, we have falafel, we have chopped liver, we have kugel, we have so many different things. And each of us will get up off our chairs at this enormous simcha we're all at, the world's biggest bar mitzvah or wedding, <laughs> and we'll go up to this buffet table and we'll choose something different. I might choose shakshuka and hummus. Karen, you may choose some kugel and chicken soup and kanedla. But we're all choosing from the table. We don't need to judge who is choosing what, how is that person expressing their Jewishness. And listen, of course, there is complication. We are a rule-governed society. We have to be choosing from the table. We can't be, you know, on another simcha down the road and choosing what they're eating. It has to be from this table of Jewishness. And each of us gets to go up to this table and choose whatever we like. So you get to find your own way of expressing and feeling your Jewishness from this great table. Because the, we are a civilization. There's not just one or two aspects of our culture. We are an ancient civilization. Our ancient contemporaries were the Babylonians, the Persians, the Assyrians, all them law. And we're still here in 2022, celebrating and living and owning and redefining our Jewishness. And that is a miracle. And each of us gets to participate in that. 
Uh, yeah so much there one one thing that I did want to ask you though Ben is um lots of people listening to this and hearing how you leave the house every day with your huge gold mug in David which we'll need a photo of to, to put in the show notes I'll maybe we'll do a fun little screenshot or something at the end and and your kippah and I know that quite a few of our listeners might be thinking I'm scared to do that and I don't feel like that at all well actually I have periods when I you know don't want to be glaringly Jewish but how do we get to where you are well the first thing I'll say is safety is is paramount if you don't feel physically safe then you get to choose how to protect yourself in whatever way you see fit I'm expressing my Jewishness in an external way because I want to, but that doesn't change how I feel inside. If I'm wearing a baseball cap, if I don't do my hair, I'll wear a baseball cap. And if I wear a jumper, you may not see my Megan David. Does that mean I'm any less proud to be Jewish? No. It's a feeling in here, in our hearts. Mm. It's a candle that exists in every single one of us that cannot and must not be blown out by the wider world, by their hurricane of hate that is always being whipped up around us. So if you don't feel physically safe, take whatever steps you need to to feel safe. And if that means not expressing your Jewishness physically, then that is a damning indictment, not on you, but on the world around us, that we are made to feel unsafe. Again, we have done nothing wrong. We have to exist in our reality. I know. And it's, you know, the fact that we just accept that there are security guards outside nursery, Jewish nurseries and synagogues. And, you know, only since I started doing what I do that I realized this is wrong. And, you know, everybody in my family just thinks, oh, they don't think anything of it. They think, fine. So, you know, it's just part of it. Just part of it. And you're absolutely right. And this is the problem that we don't necessarily question our experiences enough. We don't necessarily dissect them and understand them and, and really try to analyze what they really mean. We as a community, I believe, suffer from trauma. And not just the trauma from our own experiences. And whilst being back in London, I used to live in Hong Kong. I've been back in London for, I don't know, maybe three and a half, four months at this point. Um, I faced anti-Jewishness in the streets because of my outward symbols of Jewishness. So that has happened in the time I've been in London. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And that is, is definitely leaves a mark. But we also face trauma from the collective experience. You know, the fact that 2021 was the worst year in a decade for Jew hatred, that is horrifying. The events of last May were horrifying. That leaves a mark. But also the Shoah, the pogroms, the Farhud, the treatment of the Betty Israel Jews, the Inquisition, all of our experiences, all of our collective experiences leave a mark culturally and actually genetically. We carry it with us. The book, The Body Keeps Score, is a wonderful study on this, that our genomes are changed based on the experiences of our ancestors, even in, even in how we carry weight. We are a product of the people who came before us. And let's not forget that the vast majority of Jews are the direct descendants of those who survived multiple genocides and ethnic cleansings and enslavements and legal segregations. Those are our ancestors' experience. So we have to recognise them. We have to recognise the fact that, yeah, it's actually insane that we have to have security. And I'm not for one second saying we get rid of our security, but what I'm saying is we recognise that it's insane and we point our fingers at those who are responsible, which is the wider world, and say, you make us do this. So again, if you feel unsafe, do not feel pressure to express your Jewishness in a way which may put you in danger. You express it in a way which you feel comfortable. But what I will say is analyse your feelings. And make sure that if you are, say, hiding your Magen or not choosing to be a visibly Jewish Jew, then work out why. 
And, it, and it's okay. It's okay. Just understand why. And I think that is the biggest lesson that I learned from my journey that I've taken. And you, the very first question you asked was how I got here. And it was this journey that I spoke of is understand why we do what we do understand our responses, understand what triggers us, understand the pain we feel, the joy we feel. We have to just understand it. We cannot allow these things just to kind of go over our heads and pass us by because we have to understand, I believe, that Jewishness doesn't belong to us. We're mm -hmm. caretakers of it. One second, I will say that we're caretakers of it for future generations. So we have to leave it in the best shape possible to pass it on. And how can we do that if we don't understand it, if we don't repair it, if we don't reclaim our story? Just want to interrupt this episode to tell you about my community, Smashing Life. It's an incredible place to connect with like-minded Jewish women, share Jewish culture and joy, and learn Jewish rituals that will fill your life with purpose. We've got masterclasses, we've got social events online and in real life, we've got discounts, we do Zoom Shabbats, we have a conversion club if you're in the process of converting, but most importantly, we enable you to create deep friendship and connection with with Jewish women both in your area and internationally. Have a listen to what Amy from London has to say. Through Smashing Life, I have met other Jewish women in my part of London and I've connected with them online and in person and it's been wonderful. Thank you, Smashing Life. So if you're ready to be part of a Jewish community that supports one another, that share our passions together to achieve big goals and just have a really, really good time, why don't you join Smashing Life today? Just head to smashinglife.club. That's smashinglife.club. I can't wait to see you in the club and welcome you with open arms. How does community play a part in, in this Jewish pride? Do you think you can be enjoy being a proud Jew on your own? Or do you think it is about community? And talk to me about Jewish community. I think Jewish community is vital, but also some people are not physically in those spaces. Remember, I'm from Glasgow. There were 5,000 Jews growing up in Glasgow. I've lived for the past six years in Hong Kong. There was about 10,000 Jews. I really do not relate to this New York experience of many, many Jewish people, or even in some ways, North London. Mm. It doesn't, that does not how I've experienced my Jewishness. So while the Jewish community is a vital component of it, we're going to live where we live. We're going to do the jobs that we do. So that's just our reality. And for me, it was always a feeling of being, A, I was a part of a community in Glasgow and to an extent in Hong Kong. So I had a Jewish community. But also I think it's the idea of a community. Am Echad one people. So while I was a Jew growing up in Glasgow or a Jew living in Hong Kong, I knew that I was part of this incredibly special, incredibly beautiful, unified people, even with our diversity. And we have enormous amounts of diversity, as I really mentioned and, and really explained in my first book, Reclaiming, uh, sorry, the first book, I always gave the title for my second book, Jewish Pride Reclaiming Our Story. You know, I, I profiled a diverse group of Jewish people, but even in our diversity, we are unified. We are one. So that feeling is is beautiful and it helps this flame keep on going. Mm, that's, that is beautiful. I love that you're the most incredible articulator, Ben. You must have people pulling out quotes left, right and center. <laughs> Can you tell me about some stories? We've talked a lot about how the outside world has made us feel shame. 
Can you talk about some stories where you felt positively included as a Jew? And like, maybe let's, let's start thinking about some examples of what the outside world can do better, things you might have experienced. I was very fortunate in Hong Kong. For the last six years, I lived in Hong Kong, as you know, and I worked for most of the time at an international school called the Harbour School. I lectured at universities and did other things, but I, for most of the time I worked there. And one of the things they did, which was the most wonderful experience, was they listened. And that is what the non-Jewish world can do. And remember, when I say the non-Jewish world, I'm not speaking about individual non-Jews. Just as I'm not really speaking about individual Jews, these are things much bigger than both groups. This is a system of oppression. It is a deeply embedded societal problem. But what people can do, what the world can do, is listen. Allow Jewish people to tell our own stories. Allow Jewish people to reclaim our story, to define our identities. I was given carte blanche to teach whatever I wanted. I taught classes on the Holocaust. As I mentioned previously, I was a Holocaust educator. And I taught classes about Jewish identity, the Jewish history, the Jewish story. I called it, taught a class called The Story of the Jews, which is a title I borrowed from Simon Shama. So... Shout out. He's a great. <laughs> um, and I could do what I wanted. And they listened. And if I experienced Jew hatred, and I did, I had people to talk to about it. And I felt seen. I felt supported in wearing my kippah. And the students were incredible. Now, this was an international school in Hong Kong, remember. So there were students from the West, but there was also many students from around Asia. And not all of those students have a context of Jewishness. And I remember there were students who said to me, what's that little hat you're wearing? And they were curious. And they wanted to know. And when it was last year, actually, when it was Rosh Hashanah, I brought in honey cake that my partner made. I brought in challah. I took the students to a, an Israeli restaurant and we had falafel together and they wanted to learn because they gave me space to explain my own experience. And I said to them, we have similarities. We're, we're, some of us are foreigners. Some of us are, some of you are, are local, local from Hong Kong, but we're all living in Hong Kong. But let's all tell our own individual stories. I'm a Jew. What does that mean that I'm a Jew? And some of them would say, oh, it means you're a religion. And I'd say, okay, well, let me, let me tell you what Jewish identity means. We're more than just a religion. And even when I was teaching the Holocaust, there were students who would say, well, why couldn't the Jews just convert? I'd say, well, because... There is another element to Jewish identity and they would listen. And that is something the wider world can do. We're not here to shame. We're not here to pass judgment. We're all raised in the worlds that we live in. We're all socialized. This is bigger than all of us, remember. But each individual person can decide, you know what, I'm going to be an ally. And the way that I will express my allyship is just by listening and by asking questions and not by challenging. When you ask a question, there is a difference between asking a question in good faith. And I would say this to my students. So I'm putting my teacher hat on. There's a difference between asking a question in good faith out of curiosity and asking a question to challenge. And challenging is important in certain contexts. And I would always say to my students, if I say something you disagree with, challenge me if it's an opinion if it's an idea but if we're talking about fact if we're especially talking about my identity don't challenge me ask clarifying questions and actually the result may be the same but it's about the empathy with which you ask say oh mr freeman i don't i didn't know that why is that why why do you consider it an ethnicity and, and not just a religion can you explain that to me that's a positive good faith question and each individual jewish person 
And listen, this is this is what it means to be a minority. This is this is either fair or unfair, whatever. It's the reality. As a gay man, I have to do it too. We have to explain ourselves. And we can see that as a negative and say, oh, why do I have to do that? I love it. I love telling people and sharing. You know, this Rosh Hashanah, I was with one of my best friends and her family. My partner was with me, obviously. He was the only non-Jewish person. But when we stuff Rosh Hashanah and Pesach and all these festivals in, in Hong Kong, I was the only Jew. Wow. Because I invite <laughs> one of my closest friends, Thibault, who's from France, one of my closest friends, Joanna, who's mixed Filipina Chinese. Come, come and learn, come and share. Let me explain to you why, because I'm proud. I want to share because I think Jewishness is amazing and beautiful. And I feel so fortunate to be a part of this community and to be a part of this world. Let me share it with you. Let me show you. And I so- think that that's why, um, you know, you, you, you talked heavily about we have to read, know our history, know all that to be able to shed the shame and stand up effectively to to the hatred. And I think it's key and something that when you know, you, you say you don't have to be afraid of being challenged or clarity. And I think I'd like to talk a little bit about something that affects my community, a lot of my listeners, which is talking about Israel, where mm. I think the same thing is, is relevant. You've got to know the facts. You've got to read the history. But what recommendations do you have for talking about Israel with your non-Jewish friends when a new story comes in and suddenly we're seen as representatives of the state of Israel or or the topic of Israel, how to handle it with our non-Jewish friends or social media accounts that have it in for us? (laughs) Social media is a bit different. (laughs) Well, that's where I think people feel so upset when when they see their friends sharing Israel stuff on, on social media. So maybe we should sort of go there. Well, for sure. I mean, what I say to people in my real life is, I say it in a nice way, but I'm going to just be frank. I say, who knows more about this, me or you? Yeah, yeah. Simple as that. Simple as that. (laughs) And please ask clarifying questions. But, like, exactly like I'm just talking about, I say this to my friends. I'm like, I will talk about it with you, but I will only talk about it with you if you are respectful. This doesn't matter to you. This matters deeply to me. This is my my indigenous land, my homeland, my nation, my siblings, my nephews and nieces. This is my life. So if you want to engage in a conversation, an intellectual, emotional conversation, whatever you like, fine, let's do it. But you need to understand the different roles we play in this conversation. We're not fighting about this. We're not arguing. You may ask me clarifying questions and I will explain. And if you have a specific knowledge, then please share it. But again, sharing it in good faith, not to, not gotcha, you know? So I'd say that is very important um, on in, in person. And actually people respond to it because they're like, oh, okay, sure. Everyone likes structure and guidelines. You're just giving them structure and guidelines of how to have awkward so potential true. conversations. In terms of online, please only speak online if you know what you're talking about. Now there's two ways to speak. One is an emotional experience. If you're sharing your experience, you're the expert in your experience, you share that. But if we're going to be sharing history, ideas, theory, concepts, we have to have done our homework. And as a teacher, this is a little bit of my gripe about social media. Having an internet connection and starting an account, whether that's Instagram or Twitter or TikTok, doesn't necessarily make you an educator. It makes you someone on social media. And that's nothing wrong with that. We need social media. It is absolutely one of the front lines. It is important. 
But before you speak, before you're going to start educating, really ask yourself, do you know what you're talking about? Have you done the work? And listen, there's no shame in saying, actually, no, not yet. You know, I do not talk about things I don't know. It's just I don't. And there's lots of things happening in the world that are important. And I see people sharing about lots of different things. And I don't really comment because that's not my area of expertise. I don't, I might have a conversation, you know, with you and me offline about something, but that's quite different than putting my voice out there in public. I will only put my voice out there in public with bit on a subject that I really know what I'm talking about. And I will always fact check. I'm, I've been a Holocaust educator for, I know it's nearly 20 years, which is hideous because, <laughs> but even still, and I know things off the top of my head because I've done that work for so long. I will still fact check certain dates. When was Kristallnacht the November program again? I know it was the 9th and 10th November 1938. Let me just check. There's no, there's no shame in fact checking and saying, wait a minute, let me just understand this more. Because let me tell you, somebody who's been doing this for a long time, the more I learn, the more I, the more I realize I don't know. You never get to the end. You know, I've taught this. I've written two books. When I was writing my second book, I was learning. That's why I love the research. Someone asked me the other day if I'd ever write fiction. And I said I would miss the research too much. I love it because I'm learning. So there's no shame in that. It's a beautiful journey. We should be lifelong learners. So please make sure if you're adding your voice to the fray and we encourage this and we need it, but we have to do our work first. You know, Rachel Riley from Jewish Pride Rebuilding a People was an amazing example. She was a huge important. Yeah, can you share her story for anyone that may not um, sure. have heard it? She is a national treasure, let's say, in the UK. She presents Countdown, which is an amazing kind of British institution. It's a math show and an English show. Um, and she's a maths whiz, which to me is some, I'm so maths illiterate. That's kind of incredible. And she's on this very successful show. She's a British public figure, a British celebrity. She's Jewish. But she's not known for her Jewishness up no, until. Yeah. Yeah. And she's actually blonde and blue yeah. eyed. You would never never know that she was Jewish and she was able to pass. Um, and when Corbynism happened. And can we just briefly in a nutshell, because we've got a lot of American listeners. <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn, Corbynism comes from Jeremy Corbyn. He was the leader of the Labour Party and he is a racist and he can sue me if he doesn't like that. He is a leftist Jew hater and actually a classical Jew hater in, in many ways. And he kind of really led the renormalization of Jew hatred on a global scale. I mean, it really was happening in Britain, but it's gone everywhere. And it was of the leftist nature. And so let's just say it was recent. It was 2019. That's what the election was. Yeah, it's 2022 now. So it was near, that's three years ago. Yeah, this this was my experience. That's why I joined Twitter. It was it was awful. We were being hounded out of the country. We were being we were being purposely targeted. And I say we, I mean the British Jewish community. We were being purposely targeted by Her Majesty's most loyal opposition. So this is not just some side figure in the political system. He who played a major, major role. So Rachel Riley, before she added her voice to the fray against Jeremy Corbyn, which many British Jews did, she said, I don't know enough. I need to learn. So she spent three months learning. What humility. It's That to me is so incredible because Rachel Riley is so clever. She's like a maths genius. But she still said, I don't know enough about this. Let me do my research. And I think that is a model for all of us. 
And how did she, I'm very interested because I think, again, it will play out as practical tips to the listeners. She did her research and then how did she get involved on Twitter, which is a very horrible place a lot of the time. Ah. Oh, Twitter's a cesspit. It's hideous. She just started tweeting about it. She she started the conversations rather than responding to things. I think she responded. She started conversations. She shared her knowledge. She shared what she was learning, what she'd learned, but she did her work first. And that that is so incredible. That's what we all must do. And I want to say again, if you want to add your voice to the fray, we need you. But we need people armed with knowledge. Another question about Rachel. I think a lot of us feel that a lot of Jews in the public eye, quite rightly, they don't need to wade in on this. And they certainly don't need to be defined as Jewish or talk about being Jewish or it's it's their individual right. She's not someone like, say, who anyone even realized was Jewish. Do you think it was something she thought through about what how would this impact her career if she stepped forward do you know anything about about that that's such an interesting question because i think it's something that high profile jews who come from other spaces really have to consider i actually don't know the answer to that i don't know if i ever asked her that you should have interviewed her that's a fantastic i'll get her on the podcast i'm going to make it that's a really interesting question I would imagine she did because she's so media savvy. You know, she is, she is, I think she's been on countdown for over a decade. So she knows how to play this game. And it is a game, right? To be a public figure in that way. She's an expert at it. So I'm sure that she um, considered it. But whether she did or she didn't, she became a really important figure. She became someone that British people recognized and loved. And they listened to her and thought, well, what is Rachel saying about this? And, and, you know, so I think just recently, I can't remember, there was a spate where, gosh, I just can't, I can't recall what it was about. But I do remember hearing people on social media saying, why isn't Gal Gadot using her account to do this? Why isn't this? And it's, it's not there. They, they don't have to be spokespeople for the Jewish people, for Israel, but there is that question they think will this impact my career you know for sure listen it's really hard i'm i'm in a different position as someone with a platform i'm i came from this space so when i like this is my career so it's not a question of me impacting my career it is my career i am a jewish educator and author but we know it can impact your career you know one of my best friends is eve barlow we've been best friends for 32 years at this point. We all know what happened to her. Well, let's again share the story for those. Maybe maybe we don't know. Eve was a very well-known, very well-respected music journalist. And she was cancelled. Basically from the summer of 2020 because she started speaking out against Jew hatred. So she still speaks about music. I mean, she spoke about um, a rapper who just died. What What was his name? Oh, Coolio. She was on Sky News speaking about Kuleo. So she still does a little bit of work, but she was working flat out before. In LA, right? In LA. She was living in London years ago and then moved to LA. So yeah, it really can impact your career. People have to be very mindful about it. And also, listen, maybe someone like Gal Gadot, she has her own experience and she's an expert in her own experience and she was in the idea. Really, but she may not feel comfortable talking about Jewish. Yeah, it's not for us to demand people do what they, you know, it's their their right to make a choice for themselves they also i do get the frustration listen i get it because these are complicated things and it's sometimes and, and we are fighting a war here like i don't want to overstate it and this podcast is about positivity and beauty and we're fighting because 
there is something worth fighting for. That's the positivity. We are we belong to the most beautiful, incredible civilization, and we should be screaming our pride from the rafters. But we're also in a war, a war with the wider world, and a war which has never really ended. It's never really gone away. So I understand the frustration that Jews have um, when public figures don't don't speak out. But ultimately, we can't force people, right? You know, people are individuals, and we can say, "I wish this person did this. I wish this person did that." But ultimately, people make their own decisions. Now, I notice we, we, we're going to get onto the fun quick fire round soon. Um, <laughs> but, oh before we, <laughs> but before we do, Ben, uh-huh. I notice you haven't said once throughout yeah. this whole podcast and yes. in your bio and in anywhere else the word anti Semitism. You use anti Jewish racism or Jew hate or, or another. Now, I, before you, you, you share your thoughts on that, I uh, created a um, a resource called How to Stand Up to Jew Hatred, Jew Hate or Jew Hatred in a, in a safe, effective way. But when I wanted to share it on Facebook or Instagram, it got flagged because they thought I was talking about Jews and hating Jews. That's what the robots do. They see the words hate and Jew and they flag it. And it's really irritating. And I have to call it How to Stand Up to Antisemitism. But let's let's go there. Why are you not using the word antisemitism? So I don't use the word anti-Semitism, you're absolutely right. And you've read the book, the second book, you've read both yeah. books. The yeah. first book, I say anti-Semitism, and the second book, I don't, as you may have known. You probably did notice, I guess, that's why the yeah. question. I don't use it professionally, and I will only use it if I'm quoting someone else. And the reason is, the word anti-Semitism was coined in 1879 by Wilhelm Marr, and he was a racist, he was a Jew-hater. And with this word, anti-Semismus, what he was trying to do was legitimize Jew hatred. Previously, it had been Judenhass, Jew hate, and he wanted to legitimize it and position it alongside the other isms of the day, anti-Semitism, so socialism, liberalism. He was trying to position it as an ideology, number one. Number two, it was rooted in racism. And I'm talking about pseudoscientific racism. I know there are people who argue about whether Jew hatred is a racism or not, This is something we should not argue about. It is a racism. Jews have been targeted through racializing, which is really what we need to talk about. To be racialized is a verb, it's an action. So we were racialized in the 19th century, um, along with other groups, by pseudoscientists, by social Darwinists, right? And they said, if you spoke a Semitic language. Now, at that time, Europe was very obsessed with language, not in a way that we are now. So we have to kind of step out of our own context. They were very obsessed with language as a sign of belonging. So they would say to Jews, you might speak German, but you're not German because you're not, you're speaking with a slight accent or this is not your native tongue because you're a Jew, therefore you speak Hebrew. So Hebrew is a Semitic language. So people talk about Semitic people, there are no Semitic people. It's a group of languages, which is Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, the Ethiopian language. So it's a group of languages. And Wilhelm Marr and others at the time said, if you speak Hebrew, you are a Semitic person and therefore certain things can be inferred about your biology. That is racism. So it was an attempt to legitimize the hatred of Jews through racism. And I thought, why are we using this? I don't understand why we would use this term created by someone who hated us. It it really makes no sense to me. And I understand people who do, and it's not really a hill I'm going to die on, I understand people that do, because as you said, there's certain situations that require it. And also I think that it's a word that people know, but I have, my work aims to progress the conversation. It aims to make people think. 
So by not using the word anti-Semitism, if that may, and it looks like it made you think, or at least you notice, which is great. That's what I want to do. So it's just more direct language, isn't it? Jew uh, hatred, uh, uh, anti-Jewish racism. Yeah, like it, it makes sense. Anti-Semitism to someone new what? to the English language has to understand what it is. And I like that it, the other terms don't need explaining. Precisely. And I, want to, and I want to reclaim our story. The second book is called Reclaiming Our Story, The Pursuit of Jewish Pride. I don't want to borrow non-Jewish ideas or non-Jewish terms to define any part of our experience. And they tried to create it, or they created it in Germany in the 19th century to legitimize their hatred on us. No, ma'am. So I really recommend Ben's book. I recommend both Ben's, but I've got a special place in my heart for your first book, Jewish Pride. I, you know, um, and and what I love also in Ben's books is there's real life profiles of real people going through all the things he's explaining. And can you just quickly mention also about the the final chapter in your new book, which I think is a really great resource for everyone. So the final chapter is a mirror of the first chapter. So in the in the first chapter, I talk about reasons why Jews may feel internalized anti Jewishness. And in the last chapter, I mirror it. So Jewish trauma becomes Jewish healing. You know, no, I can't think of any of the other type. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of thing. And it really is practical steps of how of how we can overcome internalized anti-Jewishness. And it features at the end Hevruta questions. Now, traditionally, Jews study in pairs, and we study Daf Yomi, which is the study of the Talmud, a page a day, and we study it in pairs. And I wanted to create questions, a guide for people to use and utilize when reading this book. So you can do it in pairs. You can do it in um, book clubs. I almost forgot what they were called. Yeah, first. we'll definitely have it in our Smashing Life book club. And can I just say also that Roisin, one of our Smashing Life members, is profiled in your book. Well, she is my first interview. She's number one. Um, and her story is remarkable. And she has gone on an unbelievable journey of healing. And that's what this is, you know we can look at these this subject quite pessimistically. And I wanted to say, first of all, the theory that I'm saying is correct. Look, we can see this history and this theory in these five individual people. But not only that, look what they have done. They have overcome, they have healed, they're going on a journey. But just to say the Chavruta questions are designed to help you, help all of you, my, my readers, your listeners, hopefully, to utilize this book in the most effective way possible because my work is about solutions i can lecture and i do and i have about jew hatred about historical jew hatred contemporary jew hatred anti-zionism the holocaust but this jewish pride series this revolution is a solution that kind of rhymes and jewish pride is a revolution it has changed the jewish world at central synagogue in manhattan the sermon in rosh hashanah a video has been going around on social media was about Jewish pride. It's a revolution. We're, ch we're changing the Jewish world. And I'm so proud that, you know, my work has played a part in it. And my book is, I can, I think it's considered to be the first book, especially the manifesto of this movement. But again, it's not just a movement. It is something we can utilize every single day. We got Ben in originally, was it last year, wasn't it, Ben, into our Smashing Life community to do a masterclass because everyone had been talking about the book. 
Um, and, and obviously Roisin had got involved with Ben's second book, and it was such a great masterclass. And I said to Ben, come on the podcast one. We've got to we've got to have you on in the wider on the wider platform as well. And finally I got you on. But I oh. know that this second book will be talked about just as much in our community. It will definitely be our, be our book club of the month and we'll dissect it and do the it's yeah. just gonna have such such wonderful ripple effects. So thank you. Thank you for the work you do. <laughs> so let's get into our fun, quick fire round, Ben. This is really fun, really easy stuff. I'm not going to challenge you with your with your deeper, meaningful side. <laughs> <laughs> and just quick answers. Let's go. Matzo ball soup or bagels with locks? Matzo ball soup. Buy or bake a challah? Bake. Oh, no, no, no. Buy. I hate cooking. Buy. <laughs> By the way, you can give a long answer if you want to. Um, red wine, white wine or grape juice for Kiddush? Oh, I love grape juice. I'm, <laughs> I'm a 35-year-old <laughs> I went home to Glasgow about a month ago with my partner and my mum had Kedem grape juice and I had like little shots of Kedem grape <laughs> you, must have been, you must have been on the floor. I know, I love it. <laughs> if I'm trying to be sophisticated, I will have red wine. I cannot, I do not do white wine. I hate it. But yeah, I love, my four, my four cups at Pesach are also grape juice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think of you the next time I give my kids grape juice. Favourite Yiddish word? Oh, the thing that just came to mind is verklempt. Which I guess is like, I, I was about to use the word and the, the like, verklempt, a bit like, oh. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't know I, think, I like the sound of it. I love the sound of Yiddish. I think it's amazing. I love, I love how it sounds. It's very expressive. Favorite Jewish tradition? Oh. Okay, I'm going to be a little morbid here. I think our tradition surrounding death. Yes. Oh, incredible. Thank you for saying that. They gave me, when my father passed away, a blueprint of how to mourn. And I can talk about my father's passing now without crying, but every single year, the beginning of February is his yard site, and I light the yard site candle, the remembrance candle. I say Kaddish, the Jewish mourner's prayer, and I break down. And I sob on my partner's shoulder. And it's a time for me to let it out. And I'm given it once a year by the Jewish calendar. And it's 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 there's so many incredible aspects of our civilization or our peoplehood but that one really speaks to me because of my experiences and it's it's we're so lucky to have it really would you maybe be willing i know it's not totally aligned with your work but maybe willing to do a podcast about grief and mourning the jewish yeah. way because oh. i never felt so so fortunate to be jewish as when my mother passed away coming up to a year ago so having reached that one year point and it just saved me the traditions yeah. and the rituals saved me yeah i remember the first time i like so my i was in hong kong with my partner i had been at home helping take care of my father and it was my 30th birthday and I, my parents sent me out to hong kong to be with my partner and a week later, so a week after my 30th, my father passed away. And I flew home and it, you're still in shock, really. Like, I mean, and I, I love that the funeral is so fast because you're really still in shock. But I remember the first time it kind of like, the first like jolt of, oh, was when the man, I don't know who it was, the man brought round the small chairs for Shiva and there was four chairs and there was five people in my family, including my father. And I remember saying to him, oh, there's five of us. And my brother-in-law, Didi, was helping me bring in the chairs. And he was like, no, Ben, there's not. Not anymore. And that, yeah, was a real moment. And it was to do with Shiva. You know, I, like, I would, my father was ill for a while. And I would dread his funeral. Because I knew it was going to happen and I would dread it. But actually, 
while it was traumatic in a sense, it happened so fast that I was still in shock. So I would definitely, I feel very strongly about this because of the experiences that mm. we share. Um, well, let's do let's do a podcast about to help others not fear the funeral. Let's oh, back bring to back <laughs> to the lightness, the light and the fun. Favorite Jewish holiday. <gasps> ah! And uh, why? <laughs> Rosh Hashanah. I love Rosh Hashanah because it's our new year. It's not only a fresh opportunity and we get to commit ourselves anew to Jewishness and Jewish pride, but it really represents our civilization. This is our calendar. It's yes. <laughs> our language. It's our land we're celebrating. Remember, I ate pomegranate in Scotland. We're rich in symbolism in our civilization, but that is one that really speaks to me. I love it. In the same way that I watched my Chinese friends celebrate Lunar New Year. Mm-hmm. And I loved it because they were celebrating their civilization. And so do we in Rosh Hashanah. I love it. That's beautiful. Home-cooked elaborate Shabbat dinner or Chinese takeout Shabbat dinner? <laughs> Home-cooked. Home-cooked. Yeah, oh my God. I Yeah, love yeah. it. <laughs> Jewish love person or Jewish celebrity you would most want to interview for your next book? Ah, oh, that's so good. Oh God, I like it. What a difficult question. You can have a pause and we'll edit it out. Okay. (laughs) So I'm going to see Funny Girl with Leah Michelle in a month or so. And I'm very interested by her because she's. Can you repeat the name again? Leah Michelle. I'm very interested in her because she is someone who, her father is Jewish. So as far as I'm concerned, she is a Jew. Um, But she is not someone who has so publicly celebrated it. And that I find really interesting. And I think there might be, listen, who, who am I to diagnose other than the person who wrote the book? But, you know, it, it, I, that's very interesting. Why? And what does it mean? What has it meant for her to in some ways be defined Jewishly? You know, if you watch Glee, Rachel Berry was a Jew. That was a big part of her character. She's deeply connected to Barbara Streisand, another Jew, of course. She's playing Fanny Bryce on Broadway, another Jew. But what does that mean to her? I just find that fascinating for someone who doesn't necessarily, f- and I don't know her. So, she, so, and I have seen images of a Hanukkah on her Instagram. So some people say to me, she doesn't feel it at all. I don't think that's true, but I find it fascinating because she is someone whose Jewishness is expressed also in her physical appearance. So what, what is that like to be, I'm just curious about her identity, but listen, there's so many, for those of you who don't like Leah Michelle, don't come for me. There's so many Jewish celebrities. <laughs> I, I just can't think of any. I mean, Zac Efron, he's yeah. hot. Why not? <laughs> if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? It would be about Jewish pride. And it would say that Jews have a right to define our own identity and experience. Short and simple, because that's it. We have a right. <laughs> What's something people seem to misunderstand about you? People don't know that I'm funny. <laughs> I'm happy <laughs> when I say that. Honestly, I'm a hoot. <laughs> make my partner laugh. My friends and I were always chuckling together. But my work online is very serious. So people don't really, if they only know me through my work, through my books or my social media presence, they don't know that I'm a real person with a sense of humor and who also loves Britney Spears. And I'm a, a multifaceted human being. I'm not just, you know, a teacher and an educator um, who's very serious the whole time. So I think people don't know that I'm funny. Oh, I'm loving this. Are you happy to do a few more? Yeah, great. <laughs> um, what keeps you up at night? 
Wow. Um, <laughs> You'd have to answer. <laughs> I have lots of ambition. You know, I feel like with the second book and the press that I'm doing, I'm letting people in more, sharing my experiences. I'm a very ambitious person. And honestly, what keeps me up sometimes is the the fear of not achieving what I think I can achieve. I think that's quite a scary thing that can be paralyzing. I, I try not to let it paralyze me. But, you know, it's, and that's kind of from a very personal perspective. It's great that you've said it. It's a sort of, wow, I love that. Thank you for, yeah. for being vulnerable with us. On that note, what do you think you'll be doing 20 years from now in 2042? Uh, on this podcast. <laughs> my, my 40th book. I don't know. I want to keep on writing. I want to keep on educating. You kind of said at the beginning, it's Bashert. I feel like this is what I meant to do. And I really hope that people still are willing to give me a platform and to embrace my work because I can be writing these books, but if people like you aren't embracing the message, aren't embracing the work, then it's not having the impact that I want it to have. So mm. I'm so grateful to you. I'm so grateful to every single person who has read my book, who's liked my tweets, who follows me because I really see my life's, purpose as fighting and working for the Jewish people so I hope I still get to do that well like I say you only kind of came to my attention through members of my community that kept talking about you that kept reading the book that kept sharing photos of the book in our community saying this is amazing can you get Ben in so my community spoke to me and now well, we're hopefully you know having a really massive effect together and it's yeah, lovely cool. to, to bring it right back that right back to what we said at the beginning about your work being for sure it absolutely is I want to ask you one more fun question though because I really, really want to know the answer if you could have Friday night dinner with any three oh. Jewish people dead or alive who and why so they'll be vastly different people so this might be a disaster of a dinner party it might <laughs> be terrible. so I'd love to have Maimonides because I mean, to be able to pick a brilliant mind, how incredible, like, how can you not have that opportunity? The next is probably Amy Winehouse. Mm. I love Amy Winehouse. Back to Black is, is one of my top five favourite albums of all time. And I find her to be deeply fascinating, you know, in a kind of a contrast to Leah Michelle that I mentioned earlier, because Amy Winehouse also, her Jewishness was expressed in her physical appearance, and she wore a Morgan Dollard. Mm. She Morgan David, Magen David, and I just find her fascinating, and I would love to hear her sing. And then, yeah. who would be my? Oh, I know Albert Memmi. He'd be my third. He was a Tunisian philosopher from the second half of the twentieth century, and he is beyond brilliant. And he wrote about Jewish identity and. He, to give you a very brief backstory, he fought in the Tunisian independence movement and Jewish people in the community when he was doing that said to him, don't do this. This is not going to be good for us. This is not going to, this is not for us. And he said, no, I'm a Tunisian. I've got to do it. So he did it. And the Tunisians gained their independence and then the Jews were expelled. And I think it's a really, and he wrote about that. And he wrote about that, the lessons he learned from that. So him, so it'd be Maimonides, Amy Winehouse and Albert Memmi. It would be a good Shabbat dinner for sure. I'll be on the grape juice. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Ben, we've come to the end, sadly. So I want you to give some some parting words. If somebody just takes one thing from, from today's show, what do you want them to take with them? We have a right to tell our own stories. Yeah. 
That's it. We have a right to feel pride in our Jewishness, to reject shame, to reject non-Jewish definitions of Jewish identity. That is our right. We deserve it just as much as any other group. We are different. We should embrace it. We should accept it. We should celebrate it. And we get to tell our story. No one else. Only Jews get to define Jewish identity and experience, period. Thank you, Ben. If you want my free guide to how to stand up to anti-Semitism in 2022 in a safe, effective way, just go to yourjewishlife.co slash stop. That's yourjewishlife.co slash S-T-O-P. It's a really great guide. It's really concise, take you a few minutes to read, but it's got tips for dealing with overt acts of anti-Semitic hate, as well as microaggressions. There's lots of resources, additional books, Instagram accounts and podcasts, and it's just a really, really empowering resource that everyone needs to own. It's my How to Stand Up to Anti-Semitism in a Safe, Effective Way guide. It's at yourjewishlife.co slash stop.